You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are here with another classic novel on your mm-hmm. world tour as we continue our ventures into the beyond <laughs> in crime and mystery fiction. This week, it is Death Going Down by Maria Angelica Bosco. Yay! This is an Argentinian novel. We are covering the first three chapters today. Herds is in the hot seat, and this details the death of uh, one young woman, Frida Eidinger, Eidinger, who is an immigrant from uh, from Germany, married to one Gustavo, found dead in an elevator in a small apartment block in the city of Buenos Aires. It's it's a fun opener. Um, we we kind of get this scene of this woman being discovered in the elevator from the perspective of this like playboy, like absolutely trash individual named. Is it Pancho? Is it Soler? Pancho Soler? Is that correct? Yeah, that's the yeah, one. Yeah, he's like come out from out of the town. He's like, oh, I just, oh, I'm such a dummy. I'm going to be late home, and oh, the the lights are going to go off. And then he finds the deceased body of this lovely lady uh, and her lipstick. It's a very kind of subtle start to this story, which seems like it's going to is it subtle involve a lot of character, I suppose. <laughs> The detectives don't even show up until like the third chapter of, or close to the third chapter of this story. It feels almost like the latter half of the story with how much time we spend with the the suspects and the body before we even get them introduced properly. <laughs> but their introductory scene is uh, is truly magnificent, of course. I suppose before we get further into this, we should just give a, a quick rundown on Maria Angelica Bosco, which we'll kind of go Please into do. a bit over the next couple of weeks and hopefully get some uh, experts on to uh, inform you further. But she was an Argentinian novelist and translator and basically is renowned these days for her work in detective and crime fiction going through from the 50s to the 90s. This was the very first murder mystery that she wrote. I should also say before we continue today, this novel is set in Buenos Aires, but I have a terrible verbal tick from a gag in playing a board game over the years. Oh, I'm familiar. Where I yeah. will occasionally just say bonus airways. I'm looking forward to calling you out on it uh, as we kind of get into the episode. <laughs> Here. I think that'll be a lot of fun. It really is terrible how one friend's verbal slip up has now turned into an inescapable mistake for everyone who was at the table at the time. It turns into a bit of fun, and just a cheeky bit of fun turns into a big problem for everyone <laughs> around you. Shout out to this book. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Good grief. I think it's a pretty short book. My edition's like 150 pages, which is, isn't too out of the line for a lot of, uh, you know, middle length detective fiction books. But I felt that we got straight into the crime a lot quicker than I was expecting. There's only this slim bit of characterization where they're both commenting about their opinions on women and their relationships with them. And it's a, it's a little weird. Well, and it's clearly I leading mean, that somewhere. That has to be important. That's a th- I mean, there's a whole thing with the... Because we, we start with Soler, who's like, ah, oh, women, they always want you to hang around near them for some reason. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that that statement is going to be like the thesis of the book, or we're going to overturn that thesis as the story goes on. And the caretaker's wife has a similar thought where she says... Well, she says in her mind, she says, I need to be near someone, right? I need to be near the caretaker because I need to be near someone right now. Maria Angelica Bosco kind of 
really weirdly rides a line in there where there's obviously this like kind of misogynistic subtext to it, but you're not sure whether it's like a critique well, that's, or subtext. That's what I'm excited for as we get into the book. Is it going to be, you know, the oh, women, they really do need a man to look after them. Wow. If only that murderer lady had had a man, she wouldn't have killed that other lady out of jealousy or whatever. Or is it going to be the other way around, right? Are we going to mm. turn that expectation on its head, which I, I kind of hope we do, but- Either way, I'm excited. I'm excited. The other thing that was really fun about the introduction, though, is how immediately we raise the suspicion on our first introduced characters without ever crossing that threshold where I feel like they're too suspicious. <laughs> so often the way that you and I solve murder mysteries these days, Herds, is going, well- Who's the old one out, right? But in this setup, Pancho Soler and Dr. Adolfo Lucta don't- feel that way they're both incredibly suspicious but yes it still really rides that line where you could be leaning on something else that they're up to that we uncover later outside of the main crime the doctor in particular there's a very like it's a it's a seed of an idea this moment where we look at the body and uh the doctor says you know maybe we should like rifle through a purse and try and figure who she is and solera's like no that's a terrible idea why would you even think of doing that mm-hmm. which sets him up as suspicious because he, he might be worried that the doctor will discover something but also sets the doctor up as like well is he trying to get rid of evidence and of course what happens is that he pulls this like golden lipstick thing out of out of her purse and it mysteriously disappears down a drain mm-hmm. uh <laughs> yeah and i really like the way that it comes back around when we introduce the police the first time and one of them tells uh, the police officer about the lipstick and the officer just goes that was a bad idea and they go <laughs> it probably was probably should have done that <laughs> no i mean we have quite a not not necessarily a wide breadth of characters but not not a large number of characters but perhaps uh it could be said that each character seems to come from a very specific background like so far at least i i feel like each character kind of has their own thing going on and i'm sure we'll learn more about them like there's the the caretaker and his wife who are suspicious for reasons i've already mentioned mm-hmm. um there's the like sick in the the head of the inara family um don augustine and his daughter who's out partying it sounds like kind of flaunting your duty to protect your family and going out and partying instead is like responsible even though we've only had like a chapter or a chapter and a half with these characters i feel like they all have specific reasons to be suspected rather than all just being you know for sake of example they all need money right now and then you kind of you know suspect them based on the same sort of thing well the interesting thing talking about suspecting all of the characters is that we have a very distinct metaphor for the suspicion going on here which is of course the uh, the elevator that was part mm-hmm. of the original oh, the title of the book yep. uh, which was more or less directly translated death takes the elevator uh-huh. um, i dare not try pronounce <laughs> spanish out loud in please public don't. please don't no. <laughs> um it's fun actually but basically frida is found on the sixth floor of the building where the caretaker is and the family on the first floor of the building isn't even in town. They're in Europe at the moment. It, because they're in Europe, that then pairs that with Frida's heritage. So we almost have this like increasing suspicion the further we go up the tower on both a physical and metaphorical level. Yes, yes. And it's a really interesting uh, kind of tool that Maria Angelica Bosco has used to very clearly lay out the significance of the characters here and taunt you into guessing whether or not it is a subversion that it's going to come or whether it's going to be literal by the end. Yeah, totally. I definitely feel that in my mind, as I was kind of considering the suspects, I I find that uh, the Inara family, just because of how much drama they've got going on 
and how easily you could slip someone under the radar on that family. And also the caretaker's wife, uh, I find her incredibly suspicious and they're on opposite sides of the tower. Obviously we have no one in the first floor, but in terms of the characters that have been laid forth, the characters on either side of that spectrum, I think stick out to me. And there's a, there's one particular device that's used where we get this sort of omnipotent telling of what the characters are thinking and why they're saying mm. the things that they say. Occasionally a character will use a turn of phrase or decide to say a lie or, or take some specific course of action and then the the narration of the story will say, you see, she is saying this because she has expectations of status, yeah, yeah. for example. The novel will just tell us what's going on rather than leaving it up to, to our interpretation. And I, I wonder if that might be part of the translation of the story. Like, I assume not. But uh, to me, that's the sort of thing that if I were to translate it for own work, I would put that sort of thing um, in the in the text or something to kind of explain the cultural differences, and I feel like that's that's sort of what those uh, those omnipotent pieces are are doing the legwork of, kind of explaining the culture in case you're unfamiliar with it. That's kind of how I felt in the moment. Yeah, yeah. I think the other thing that we haven't touched on yet is our police duo. We actually have a fair few oh, yeah. police characters introduced at the start of the novel, and we end up kind of settling in with Inspector Ericourt and the Blasi. Uh, two investigators and their kind of first proper scene as a duo is when we go and uh, interrogate the husband of Frida Mm. who's living in a separate building and seems very upset by what's happened with his wife but there's all of these interesting asides which is why I raised this in relation to your point just there where they're making a lot of observations about the way he's acting in relation to the things that they say which is totally normal in a crime fiction book but because of the pseudo omnipotent narration that we've been getting so far his interrogation scene stands out a lot because there's not much of that there. Yeah, it's subjective kind of deliberations. And I mean, the the chapter that we're ending on even has a, a dot point list of what uh, Ericor has has noticed about the, the crime and about the, the interrogation they've done of the husband. Um, and there's these like seven points, which we'll probably get into in the mystery section. Definitely. That seem to be like... Maybe not on the same level as, as Nox's or Van Dyne's rules, but very much these are the guidelines that we're all supposed to use to, <laughs> to understand the mystery and to, to solve it uh, the way that well, the author wants yeah, to Yeah, I have a strong rebuttal to that point, but I think we'll oh, wrap this sure. here and kind of take that into the tail end of the show today. Mm-hmm. So stick around for that. We are discussing Maria Angelica Bosco's Death Going Down from 1954. You're listening to Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour here on 2SER 107.3, and we'll be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you. I am joined by a very special guest today as we discuss Death Going Down, and that is LJ Owen, our very first guest of the year for Death of the Reader 2021 with the Great Divide, returns to us again as Terra Australis Readers and Writers Festival's 2021 edition looms close. LJ, welcome to the show. Hi, Felix. It is really good to be back. I have been looking forward to this so much. The online book clubs that you're running through Terra Australis have been just wonderful over the early part of the year. And as things have been gearing up towards this festival, I'm super amped. I'm going to be appearing at the festival talking with Naomi Hirahara, Larry Gentil, Jack Heath, Candace Fox, and you have an enormous list of other guests. 
Talk us a little bit through Terra Australis Readers and Writers Festival. All right. Well, sit back and relax because we have a jam-packed program this year, I have to say. Uh, so we're running a digital festival, which means everybody can come the last weekend of November. So we've got to have three channels of content. The first channel has interviews with incredible authors like Val McDermott, and Cleves, Gary Disher, as you mentioned, Naomi Hirahara over in the US. Uh, we've got fantastic authors from the UK, the US, New Zealand, and Australia who will be interviewing about not just their books, but their whole body of work and what, what they would actually say to their younger selves, to, to up-and-coming writers now about what choices they might make. Uh, so I, I personally think some of those interviews, if I had had those at my disposal five years ago, I could have done a much better job of writing my <laughs> own books, I have to say. Uh, so we've got uh, nine of those interviews and then we have six panel discussions as well on one. Uh, and a lot of those uh, include some, some really well-known Australian authors. Uh, we've got Anita Heiss, Solari Gentile, Meg Keneally, uh, and some really brilliant New Zealand authors like Rob McDonald or RWR McDonald, and, and a couple of really special new authors as well, uh, Michael Burge and Natalie Conyer, who've only got their first book out, but oh, they each of them, their first books are just magnificent. Uh, so, yeah, so I'd say anyone who's interested in any aspect of crime and mystery writing or reading from around the globe, if they have a look at the variety of interviews and panel discussions in that Channel One, I'm sure they will find something that they would love. Yeah, I mean, book clubs, masterclasses, writing classes, the cocktail party, the uh, the breakfast get-together, all sounds like a heap of fun. But I think the most exciting thing to me about the Terra Australis Readers and Writers Festival is its goals because something that you shared with me the last time we spoke that kind of shocked me is how statistically low the literacy rate is in your home state of Tasmania at the moment. Why was it so important to you putting this festival into that community to to drive that up and have you seen the impact of that goal uh, since we last spoke about the 2019 edition of the festival? Well, uh, to answer the, f the first part of your question, uh, yes, in Tasmania, the adult functional literacy rate uh, is only, a, it's a little under 50%. So if for people who aren't familiar with the, the term functional literacy, it means that people might be find some challenges uh, if they need to read the instructions on a medication bottle, for example, or uh, being able to, to understand written instructions so that they can get a driving licence is also, is also quite an area of challenge for, for some people. But there, there are a lot of people and a lot of organisations who work incredibly hard to try to bring literacy to more people, not just so that their lives are easier and they've got more opportunity, but also so that they actually have a whole new avenue of enjoyment in life. And I happened to grow up for part of my childhood in an area that was quite similar. Uh, in outback New South Wales where girls in particular were strongly discouraged from undertaking any form of education. Uh, for me, I found that an incredibly hard environment to, to, to be, be someone who loved books and reading and writing in. I want any children, younger people, I want them to see 
adults celebrating books and celebrating writing and getting together and talking about it and, and making it something that is interesting. Uh, and, and that's what keeps me going through the very long hours and the lack of funding and the lack of support. And, all, you know, although having said that this time around, we are actually getting more support. That's fantastic. Yeah, I've been I've been hearing a bit behind the scenes because I am speaking at the festival in, in uh, at least in facilitation manner. And it has been so admirable watching you put this together, LJ. I am amazed at what the small team has been able to get going. Thank you. And, and I've got to say the team is amazing. While I am in one room talking to you right now, there are four or five other people in other rooms. They've been working all weekend and they'll continue to work for the rest of the weekend doing different things for the festival to make sure that all of our all of our ticket buyers get something a little special. It's quite personal for them. So they, you know, again, so they know we really value them. Uh, and also putting together <laughs> what looks like just hundreds of spreadsheets of information so that <laughs> everyone gets the right Zoom link and everyone gets the right email. And <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, look, just the sheer administration involved in something like this is is quite amazing, even to me. And I'm a project manager. so <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, one of the other things that was wonderful about the 2019 edition of the festival is, I mean, I, you know, coming at the start of this year and going to find things to discuss with you when we covered The Great Divide on the show, uh, it was so great having that resource online almost two years after the festival at that point. Uh, because it, it gave an avenue into a whole bunch of these interesting questions that I'd never considered. And now The Great Divide has become this book that I don't think I've, I've thought about another book after reading it nearly as much as The Great Divide over the entire course of doing Death of a Reader, just because I was able to go and access that information really encouraged me to think about those ideas in ways I wouldn't have otherwise. So it's one of the great things about having this kind of hybrid digital festival uh, that will still be there for people, you know, months down the line. A, thank you. That is just, as a, as a writer, just as a writer putting the festival aside, that is so lovely to hear. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Yes, having all the digital assets, all the, all the recordings, the podcasts available to everyone later, I think is a really important part of what we're doing here because, Again, people might be a little bit hesitant in these spaces. I think that might mean that by the time we have the third or the fourth festival, they feel really comfortable about what we're doing and actually go, you know, I really want to be in the room. I want to be part of that conversation next time. Yeah, I, I think I think it's really encouraging. And I mean, there are a, a collection of festivals both here in Australia and around the world that are starting to creep back in on the tail end of the pandemic. And it, it just feels wonderful to see. It, it's such a, a great sign that the writing community has been able to come up with so many wonderful things from your online work. Uh, with the uh, Terra Australis Book Love Tuesdays through to bringing the festival back uh, online after a tumultuous back half of the year here. <laughs> so it's it's great to see the community yes. pulling together through all of these events, yours included. Thank you. And yes, it is. And, and really, this festival simply would not exist and it would not be going forward the last weekend of this month without phenomenal input, uh, you know, from people like you, from people like Living Arts Canberra's Barbie and Richard, uh, from Craig Sisterson over in the UK. He what has done legend. an amazing amount of work quietly in the background. He never asks for any kind of acknowledgement, but he's going to get it, <laughs> uh, you know, and 
<laughs> Too bad, Craig. Uh, and look, and just so many of our authors, almost every single author on our list has actually done additional work that no one will see. They want to create a community and a space that's filled with, with you know, a celebration of books and kindness towards each other, and especially now when the world can feel very unkind, I think, for a lot of us. We will have links up on the podcast if you're curious to get your tickets and I get a move on because some of these events that LJ has mentioned only have a few seats left. Thank you so much. And I, I can't wait to see you in your cocktail hosting getup. Oh, I'm, st- I'm still theorizing at what ca- catastrophes I can put on my body in time. <laughs> Thank you has to be a moustache of some description i think (laughs) (laughs) you're listening to death of the reader we are discussing maria angelica bosco's death going down there'll be links up on the podcast for terror australis readers and writers festival as i said stick around you're listening to 2scr 107.3 you're listening to death of the reader flex and herds here for your murder mystery world tour we are discussing Maria Angelica Bosco's Death Going Down from 1954, chapters one to three. Herds is in the hot seat. Yeah. And before we left off on the first section of the show today, Herds, we were talking about the list of seven goals mm-hmm. that Ericourt uh, writes for himself and Blasi after interrogating the husband of the victim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had some kind of rebuttal? Yeah, you made the point that it was a bit like Knox and Van Dyne's rules. Whilst absolutely that parallel exists, you are well and truly correct to have noticed it. Mm-hmm. The thing that kind of interested me here is that as opposed to a lot of the other rules that we discuss on this show, this is the first kind of itemized list since the floating admiral mm-hmm. that we have encountered that was written by a character within the story. And even the one in the floating admiral was very much a send up of everyone else working on that book. It was great. It was a great takedown as well. That was, this isn't a, a parody or a, or a means of disarming other authors and pointing out how stupid they are. This is more like a to-do list, I think, as you've you've kind of mentioned there. Yeah, yeah. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I don't expect this to be the absolute code that we live our lives by as we go through this novel, but it is uh, an indication of where the novel is going to be heading mm. and the sort of jumping off point that our detective is going to use to, to gather more clues. I'm kind of excited to see if this list gets added to as we go forward, I get the impression that a detective is someone who likes to keep things in order and have plans and such um, based on the way that he kind of splits up with his Watson uh, to to cover more ground and like execute the plan. <laughs> like, yeah, I didn't really feel that they had as distinct of a leader and sidekick role as we've seen in yes. a lot of crime fiction duos. It's yeah. very much kind of even footed. They're just a functional working pair. They're just Good friends, right? (laughs) Yeah, good friends and good colleagues. The thing that is kind of interesting about this list here is that it very much feels, at least in this translation, like it's written to the audience. You know, do -hmm. do not be too quick to assume that everyone else is mistaken. Do not jump to conclusions like, yeah, this is a guy that you've worked with and trusted for a while now. Like, you don't need to tell him this. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot of pretty basic stuff for people who've read murder mysteries before. I think particularly the first point, do not place much importance on coincidences. Plenty of people are interested in astrology, nudism, and Baudelaire. Which is, I mean, sure. In, in response enough. to the the husband of the deceased having an interest in astrology. Yes, yes. It's 
it's relevant, but a lot of these observations here, there's this section where we're read out uh, Frida, the deceased woman's letters that she sent to her husband mm. before she moved here from, from Germany because she had to get the heck out of there. And the the letters, you know, you can you can infer that she is apparently reasonable, but with a deep seated fear of life that inclined towards superstition. This 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 point that the book is making is something that I could have already inferred, but I do think it's a good starting point for tackling this novel and seeing the things that the author wants us to pay attention to, even if the point is to overcome it to ignore it in a sense the other thing i really loved about this list before we kind of move on from it broadly speaking which we should is that uh rule four says do not overlook any evidence yes muck can help us get a head start on the report we requested the dog that they just offhandedly adopted from the victim on a whim at their house they're conscripting (laughs) the dog basically they're like all right well we found this cute dog it's gonna help us solve the mystery I hope that at the end of the story, Muck is the true hero. I hope um, so too. I hope it's yeah, not a very funny. like Van Dyne way of making the dog the hero, but we'll see. <laughs> I mean, I would be okay with that, but you know. I, yeah, yeah. I enjoy tropes. So I think you know. the thing that Muck is an interesting point with the crime in this book is that the evidence, and I guess also by extension, the characterization all feel a little slow to this point in the novel, but not in a way that's like tediously slow. It's very much the kind of cozy, slow. It's not a page turner, right? Yeah. Like it's not, I got to see what happens next. It's more, oh, I'm kind of enjoying this. I think I'll sit down with my cup of tea and have a good time. Yeah. I think that Muck is kind of a really good example of that because it's just this really quaint, cute little moment where they're like, oh no, there's a dog and the guy who owns it it isn't going to be able to take care of it. We'll take the dog now. And that is exactly the kind of like energy that i get from the crime in this book i I guess we should talk about the actual crime whatever the crime is yeah there has been mention many mentions of the idea that this lady has committed suicide Mm -hmm. in order to hurt someone in the building yes and so i i need to be entirely honest with you i am not convinced either way right now as to whether this is somebody has killed her and put her in the elevator and sent her up to the caretaker's apartment to like make them look suspicious because that's that's the only way that that like works for me. You are right? definitely going to have to pick a theory by the end of today, well, is, as established by the rules for your points. You've got to have a different theory this and next week. So, you know, pick one, choose the other next week. Do I need to pick whether I think it's a suicide or a murder by the end of this week? Is that is this the cutoff point for that? Ooh, you know what? I'm just going to say yes. I <laughs> Okay, great. I hadn't really decided in full, but now that you posed me uh, the question- I shouldn't say anything, but that's okay. The, the other thing that I think is interesting is that even though we have this suggestion that the woman has committed suicide to- beat down on someone else it doesn't really explain anything else going on with the crime if you accept that to be Mm. true for example who and why uh, is in the building would that be why do we have this obviously kind of clown car setup of Solaire Mm -hmm. arriving followed by the doctor and then most importantly the lipstick disappearing down the elevator shaft like in another story that's just an oh goodness what a mistake what a mistake i've made kind of thing but this is a murder mystery like you know that's gonna come back to haunt us right yes like i i think that there is room to suggest that i mean let's get into theories right like uh, the theory that i've been kind of tossed around because i look there's got to be a murderer or someone who's done some really bad stuff in this building i'm i'm gonna Love a theory at Mr. Inara, because uh, I think that'd be fun. Of course, the one character who's said to be unable to do things. The only character who 
you know, cannot speak and knows everything. The only character who's lying in bed and says, I could not possibly stand up and do a murder because I am. And he's, but he's Dr. Vouchers for him. But if we say, for example, that the doctor uh, tossed the, the lipstick because he knew it would incriminate the old man because it was a gift from him to her. Uh, tossed it down the elevator shaft in a in a panic. Well, interesting. You're suggesting there because we more or less see that scene with the lipstick, like we do, we happen do. on the page. So, are you suggesting we have an unreliable narrator in our introduction to the crime scene? And if we then have an unreliable narrator, how many other things can we doubt about that introduction? That's a great question. You know, what? that's a great question about doubting other other elements. Like this is the one that that stands out to me because it is written in. It's almost written in like a poetic way that the lipstick absolutely definitively fell down the elevator shaft. It's written in such a way that it feels almost like a dream. It's got to connect back to the the whole moving from, from Germany thing, surely. I'm just not sure exactly how that's going to shake out. And you want me to pick whether I think it's a murder or suicide. I'm going to go with suicide as my first week theory thought. Um, I think that perhaps... She was discovered in the elevator by Inara or his wife. And then let's say that he they, they pressed the button to send the send them up to the caretaker, which is of course the farthest place from uh his own his own room, right? Sure. I, I guess the last thing I wanted to ask then, Herds, sure, is that it seems like everyone in this building has their stories straight so oh, far. No. Oh, Do no. you think that this is like a plan that all of the residents are concocting together? I don't think there's collaboration between all of them, but maybe two families or maybe just one. But of course, we'll see how it progresses, right? We'll see how these chapters go. Where's the smoking gun? <laughs> I need to find Alrighty. it. Alrighty. Well, I suppose, Herds, we will uh, wrap things up there for this week. We'll be back next week with chapters four through six, mm. leaving only the reveal uh, to tide us over towards the end of things. I hope you've enjoyed the book so far, Herds. It's a it's a bit of a, a slow novel, but in a way that I think is a nice, cozy way to get us towards our last novel it. of the year. You said you said the word. You said the word cozy. I I've can't said cozy like three times this episode. I know, but now I'm calling you out on it. That's how it is. <laughs> anyway, I'm looking forward to uh, to review season as well. I think it's going to be. There's a lot of tough contenders this year. It's going to be. It's going to be exciting. This is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour. We are discussing Maria Angelica Bosco's death going down. We'll see you back next week here on Two SCR 107.3.